every disgusting person with their disgusting casserole came to my house and said, you know, she didn't deserve this. And I, at the time, just remember thinking, well, who does? Greetings, hello, welcome, and thank you for returning to the universe of the feminist present, where we use the gift of feminism to try to figure out what is going on right now. I am Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. Adrian, if any, so like, if any famous queer authors in history were to be eating currywurst, who do you think they would be in our continuing motif of like, what would famous authors eat at the kebab shop? Yeah. I mean, just out of pure perversity, Gore Vidal. Oh, that's such a good answer. Right? He would want to be photographed doing it too. Oh, yes. And he would want to be photographed by Truman Capote while doing it. And they would be like fighting. While getting getting punched by William F. Buckley. Yes. Okay. That is so much better than the answer that I had, which is like, I feel like Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein would like eat currywurst together because nobody would care how their breath smelled. Right. That and other breaking news updates brought to you here at the Feminist Present, where we are still mining, you know, the mid 20th century for our best gossip nuggets. Um, Tell us about today's guest, Adrian. I am still fascinated by this series of events. Yeah, so this is uh, Liat Kaplan came to us as a longtime listener, first time caller, as they say. Which was so charming. Can we just pause there that like people charming. listen to this? I didn't previously know that. Yeah, so let me back up. So it turns out we have listeners. Right, important. Like, this, the, our speeches into the void have been picked <laughs> up by wonderful souls out there. Some really wonderful yeah. uh, souls. Shocking yes, Liat was like a wonderful like new friend of the pod. And she reached out to us and said, you know, you guys are talking a lot about cancel culture. I invented it. Uh, uh, allegedly. BTW, I invented yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> you know, and we said, can we talk about this? Um, can we hear more about it? So Liat is now a, a graduate student and, and has, has worked in publishing for quite a while, but outed herself, let's say, in 2021 as the creator of a pretty influential Tumblr blog called Your Fave is Problematic, uh, which we'll get into in the conversation, which indeed is frequently invoked as sort of a beginning of a particular kind of discourse that, let's say, those who don't just apply the word cancel culture willy-nilly is just anything where like, I don't know, a comedian who jerks off in front of people like gets their comeuppance, but like really kind of connects it to online discourses. Like this is often where they say this started. That makes perfectly clear that that's not the case. She was swimming on this kind of wave, but it's really, really helpful to kind of think about Mm -hmm. who was behind these kind of discourses. It's a mile marker as a Tumblr blog. It's a mile marker. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all, it also shows that what we're getting here, and this is something that Michael Hobbs already kind of brought up in his two-part conversation with us, that this is to some extent, again, like so many moral panics are a freak out about young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liat had a very funny bit where she talked about the fact that clearly people interacted with her as a much older person. They didn't realize they were talking to a teenager. Yes. Which like in hindsight, like if you looked at Tumblr discourse circa 2013, like from today's perspective, like, yeah, that's that's a teenager, right? But the fact that like age sort of has both has and has not disappeared from this discourse around cancel culture, that is to some extent a freak out about what the young ones are up to again versus broader discourse about the left. It was, it was just really, really, really interesting. And it gets at something, right? Like I had thought about this quite a bit, the fact that, like, you know, these are youth discourses and they're very online mm-hmm. kind of ways of interacting. But at the same time, I hadn't thought about the fact that those young people enter these spaces for particular reasons. 
their in a particular place in their own biography, figuring out who they are, what, who they want to be, what they can expect of the world, what they can expect of other human beings. Right? This is what the judgmentalness of some cancel culture discourse is also about. Right? The fact that they think they should hold celebrities to some standards. Mm-hmm. Right? And that you can make sweeping generalizations about a person's character based on one comment or whatever. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, I, well, I mean, that's putting it negatively, but I do think that positively one can also say like that they think that someone that they idolize ought to be deserving of that idolization. That it's mm-hmm. disappointing to see mm-hmm. them say something objectively dumb or objectively mm-hmm. tone deaf or objectively wrong. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that the conversation with Liat was so fascinating in filling all that out and giving us mm-hmm. a sense of what gets lost as these very specific, very young millennial, older Gen Z kind of mm-hmm. discourses get assimilated into like our old culture war grind that we've been on since like before Liat was born, right? Yeah. So as I'm thinking of Liat and her project, and I'm thinking of the cultural narrative power of young women, allow me to follow two associative threads that you're probably going to think I'm crazy for bringing up. The first one is, did you ever watch Gossip Girl? I did not. (gasps) Okay. So this is like firmly in my wheelhouse, like at the time that you would have been watching like Game of Thrones or watching dracula again um but like so gossip girl am i really gonna sit here and summarize gossip girl gossip girl is about the foibles of teens at a wealthy upper east side prep school crucially as narrated by an an anonymous narrator who remains anonymous until the very conclusion of the series at which point the narrator is outed as someone who makes no narrative sense to have been the narrator all along but that's like an argument for another day but the positioning that I'm interested in here is like impactful social events being continuously and anonymously narrated by the voice of a young person, you know, and that is effectively who Liat was, you know, like that's that's the function that she served with this sort of like Wizard of Ozzy Tumblr block. <laughs> I was just thinking of that. OK, so seed of thread number two that I was thinking about as we were talking to her is the essayist Emily Gould. And I think we've talked about this at other moments on the podcast, but Emily Gould became famous in the early aughts in a way that sort of crested with this Times Magazine essay that was basically about falling in love with her coworker while she was dating somebody else. And the internet then moves on and becomes more sensationalized in various ways. And Emily Gould is still writing essays and sort of replaying things that happened. And I brought her in to talk to my feminist first person essay class like three years ago. And one of the things that she said that's really stuck with me that feels really applicable to Liat at Your Fave is Problematic is Emily said something like was, she was like, it's really quaint, isn't it? That like all of this controversy ultimately sources back to an essay that's not all that sensational, you know, like it's not really that... I don't know, gory, when you look at the actual subject matter of Emily Gould's essay. I feel that way when I look at your fave as problematic. Like, look at all of the dust storm that quote unquote cancel culture has kicked off. And when we trace it all the way back to its source, its source is Gossip Girl. You know, its source Mm. is a 17 year old woman who is dealing with some shit as she was generous enough to detail to us in ways that she was not totally able to detail to the New York Times. So, 
I don't know, I've just been really fixated on both, yes, the unreliability, you know, and, and like the limitations of a young person, young woman narrator, but also the immense power of that narrator. Like both of those things are true. And both of those things are important to me about this conversation. Yeah, there's a um, friend of the pod, Maura Weigel, often says that so many cultural freakouts of our moment can be traced back to the sense that women are talking. Yes. And not uh, and women are talking to each other. Exactly. Um, right. And and um yes. I think that goes twice over for young women, that there is a kind of a readiness to impute to them a kind of very uncanny exactly. societal power that like, you know, if you take one look at the power structures in this country, mm -hmm. like they don't have, but like in the minds of certain uh, not just male observers, they clearly hold all this. Yeah this immense power. And part of it is just like, it's a conversation that you're not fully included in. I mean, that's more the case with later call-out culture and and cancel culture than with uh, mm -hmm. you favor is problematic. But like, one of them is that it's not entirely clear how serious all this is, right? Like, that like, there's a register of sincerity here that is very generational. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not necessarily going to be legible to everyone, which goes gets right mm -hmm. down to, you know, you and I both scrolled through the blog in preparation. And it's very, very funny in that it's a time capsule mm -hmm. Of like what seventeen-year-olds cared about at the time. Time capsule is a perfect word. Yes, it's this amazing time capsule of you know celebrities that seventeen-year-old, eighteen-year-olds cared about at the time, and then there are a ton of people missing mm -hmm. that we absolutely would have expected in hindsight, but that just mm -hmm. weren't that important uh, or weren't that central to these these people. And I do think the fact that this was a discourse between young people and probably largely young women is not unrelated to the fact that it led to this kind of cultural freakout. Another thing that feels interesting and relevant is that exactly the sort of imbalanced judgment towards women that was levied at Liat is also the same force that she will openly admit to have levied at some of these female celebrities like Lena Dunham and Taylor Swift. So in this document of Your Fave is Problematic, it's such an interesting prism to me of like these layers of internalized and projected misogyny that just like sort of resound outward with the generations. And I think it's so interesting and so beautiful, really, that like Liat decided to keep herself anonymous as the author of this project, then came out, you know, in the New York Times. And what she's doing now is leading an essentially private life, you know, working on a social work degree, thinking about her impact in the world beyond just language. And I, I hear that and I'm like, here is someone who had a profound experience and like learned and internalized some things from it. And I just think that's a really interesting journey. And I feel really honored that she called us up to let us in on it. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing that I wanted to bring up, I, I really, we, we touched a couple of times in the conversation on the question of evidence, mm -hmm. right? The fact that there was kind mm -hmm. of a, she was kind of modeling for her readers, like how much information was really already out there and could be known. That's right. And, and that to me, uh, the kind of these kind of open secrets that are sort of around, I think, are the thing that connects this blog to you know, Me Too and later years. So I think that the idea of like bringing the receipts, right, like yeah. is, is extremely important here. There's a, there's a mode of evidencing that's becoming sort of established in that blog that that today feels like it's everywhere. But you know, people had to sort of learn to use the Internet that way, mm -hmm. to check celebrity and check power that way. The internet. I don't think it's over yet. I think we're still going to be doing the internet for a little while. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a light hypothesis. Well, let us then walk across the bridge and not be canceled at the end of it to our interview with the wonderful Liat Kaplan. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
journey what a fucking i feel like we've had a journey just getting here okay yeah. <laughs> yeah why are you talking to us tell us in your own words how you got here um i mean in terms of emailing you all or just like who who i am <laughs> in any terms you want yeah who are you who are you and what's your specific bailiwick when it comes to cancel culture yeah when it comes to cancel culture it's something i think about a lot because i am often accused of inventing it because my blog, which I started in 2013 on Tumblr, Your Fave is Problematic, is often cited as the birth of cancel culture, the big bang of like everyone losing their critical thinking skills on the internet and canceling each other, mm -hmm. which is like pretty plainly absurd to me. But I hear it constantly, like every, I just see it everywhere on the internet. And it's something that I, I don't know, like I think about it a lot because of that. I had never like attached my name to the blog or anything at the time. And about a year and a half ago, I felt like I was seeing all this very stupid, like writing about cancel culture on the internet. And I was like, as someone who's often credited for inventing this, maybe I should like say something about it. And so I wrote uh, an essay that was in the New York Times about like sort of what was going on for me during that time and how like I really realized that like there was a lot of nuance lacking from being like 17 years old and being in a pretty traumatic like point in my life and that I had started this thing as really like a coping mechanism in a lot of ways and then I didn't say anything about it again like I got like media requests at the time and I just like ghosted everything I didn't I felt like I said what I have to say and I have no interest in engaging beyond that but I have sort of been realizing lately, like the New York Times being the type of institution that it is made some significant changes to the essay, namely that they removed any reference to the reason that I sort of had been being bullied in high school in the first place, which is that I had been sexually assaulted by another student at the school. And they were like, for liability reasons, we can't even mention this. So I felt like actually in retrospect, like, no, that felt like critical information, especially when people were talking about like, this New York magazine article that was like canceled at 17 about a teenage boy who had like shown his girlfriend's nudes to other students at school. And it had gotten this like whole feature about how compelling and beautifully freckled he was. Cover story. He got a cover story. Cover story. Yeah, yeah exactly. With the like cause skateboarding yeah. uh, cover art. And yeah, and I felt like, huh. I have a story about being 17 having to do with cancel culture, <laughs> but it's not that I, you know, like invaded someone's privacy sexually when I was 17 and then was canceled for it. It's that I was sexually assaulted when I was 17 and was run out of my high school by students and administration alike. And with all the free time in the world, having been kicked out of high school, I started a blog that invented cancel culture. I mean, you know, so to speak, I felt like that was an important moment for like me kind of realizing like, no, I do feel like there's a little bit more I have to say about this. Like, I do feel like 
there's added context and the cancel culture discourse continues to get stupider and stupider and further and further from any basis in reality that it might have ever had. I'm just taking a moment with all of that because anything that I could rush it to was a monologue. A no, it was fantastic. And it was deeply, it was rich and interesting and I'm taking it in. Adrian, I will let you take it away. There's so much in that sequence that you describe. I mean, right down to the New York Magazine cover that you both were mentioning. I feel like the cancel culture discourse has jumped the shark like multiple times, but definitely that felt like it just jumped the shark from Jaws, basically. <laughs> <laughs> who gets empathy in these stories and who doesn't is so important. And the way you got your story out there, but they weren't empathetic enough to be like, hey, the sexual assault part might be a pretty important part of that story, suggests that like, even when the people allegedly doing the canceling get to tell their side of the story, there's not a whole lot of empathy extended to them. That from the newspaper that broke so many of the important Me Too stories, I think it's really, really remarkable. Now, one thing I did want to ask about, you had time on your hands, you started this blog. Can you remind us uh, who was the first problematic fave uh, in, in all of human history? I don't remember exactly who the first post was, but I do remember the celebrity that made me be like, okay, I'm going to like do this because yeah, I had been, you know, I'd been on Tumblr. I'd been seeing these sort of snippets you would see here and there of like one post about something a famous person had done or said, or yeah, like a couple articles about it or something. And I was like, I've seen, I've been seeing so much stuff about this person. The like organized part of my brain was like, I'm just going to compile it all. Like I shouldn't be seeing multiple posts missing the same pieces of information. And so I like compiled a bunch of information about Jennifer Lawrence, who was doing, I guess, a press tour for one of the Hunger Games movies at that point, And, you know, really like had a bad case of you know, like foot and mouth itis. And also her PR strategy seemed to be to try and seem like a quirky down guys girl, which just led to her saying a bunch of offensive stuff in the media. And I just thought, let me just compile all of this. And uh, yeah, I was just frustrated <laughs> with that. And I mean, that's already such a perfect example for what made that blog so specific and what it's gotten, what's gotten lost, right, in the cancel culture discourse since. Jennifer Lawrence really was a fave, right? Like, it's not that people hated her and therefore you like you didn't dig up stuff because you didn't like her. It's like, she's ultimately a really wonderful human being, it seems like. People who know her seem, seem to really like her. But like you say, she like, there's things coming out of her mouth that like, you know, people might want to know about. Um, and so the fave part was pretty serious, right? I mean, I guess let me ask it this way. Who was the first celebrity you had to put up there that you actually disliked? Was, was there someone where you're like, oh, this person actually just kind of straight up sucks and now I'm going to take them down? Or, or does that never happen? I'm sure that there was. I'm trying to think about, I mean, it definitely was, it was faves. Like, you know, someone remarked to me recently that going back through the blog's archives is really a tour of who was famous on Tumblr in 2013 and like who teenage girls really, really liked in 2013 some of whom are still super, super famous, like, you know, Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga, and some of whom, like, you know, the actors in the show Supernatural, really, that was, like, the way in which they were famous, and they're not exactly, like, mega celebrities now. Are you telling now. me that Jared Palalecki has a dark secret? I don't even remember what, I'm sure it was, like, they're queer baiting in the show and stuff like that, but it was, like, everyone who was requesting, like, celebrities, by and large, they were requesting celebrities that, they loved. Right. And so that turned out because the population of readers was like Tumblr using many teenagers, many young women. 
that meant that the population of celebrities was basically like those people's faves. And then I really had to struggle to find male celebrities. Like it was really the ratio of like female celebrities who were requested to male celebrities was absurd. And I had like the consciousness of like, I don't just want to be posting about women because that is fucked up in its own way. But I'd have to go out of my way to find male celebrities. And I would have to like, I would like, I remember Googling like celebrities who had like been arrested for like domestic violence and stuff like that, because I was like, I have to find some male celebrities to put on here. And so no one like requested like Sean Penn because they were a Sean Penn fan. He was the person I put on there because that was a male celebrity with name recognition that I could find who was still famous and still working, who like was on a list of like celebrities who, yeah, had been like charged with domestic violence or, and, but yeah, I mean, I think the people who I put on were, who I didn't like were people like that. And then, you know, I also had feelings about like, I thought this show was stupid. And so I don't like this celebrity because like, I don't care about Supernatural or whatever. Right. Clicking through today, you do really notice that, that like, it is a lot of, I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism, but it just, it, it is about the kind of bubble that it came out of clearly that like it's like you know this female celebrity said a bunch of things that maybe she shouldn't have and then like this person ate a person right like it was basically <laughs> like the men like did these like horrible things and i'm exaggerating slightly but i mean it's literally like you know they were like garbage bags of body parts and then like the other one's like well no should fire her, her publicist i find that really interesting and i i, I mean it, it is also as you say it took me back about like oh what was on like was that still the WB or was that the what is it, UPN or like, you know, whatever it was, you know, the kinds of shows that like that late, that sort of people in their late teens would watch. It's like, there's no one's like problematic favorites like John Cougar Mellencamp or anything like that. Um, yeah, it was, that'd be amazing, it was CW though. shows and boy band members and uh, a couple like K-pop boy band members too. Right. It's so funny. I'm, I'm doing the scrolling too. And one of the things that sticks out to me from like this blog and also just like the Tumblr era in general is how it kind of stands in a gap of public sincerity, by which I mean the early 2000s, the Gawker era, really mean time on the internet, you know, like I think to be op to be willing to be openly sort of snarky and mean was pretty celebrated in like this phase of, in like, I'm calling it sort of 2000 to 2010 of the internet. Yeah, and until 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 basically from Peter Thiel is totally gay people to yes, Peter Thiel sues you out of existence for the exactly. article, Peter Thiel's Totally Gay People. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I can't pinpoint it to anything specific, but somewhere between 2010 and 2020, the internet got a lot more, like, earnest on Maine, right? Like, I don't think snark is as prioritized now as it once was. And sort of in between those two polls, we have this Tumblr era. And I see I see that in the blog. I, I don't know if this is working up to a question, yet. I'm just sort of processing in real time. <laughs> But like, I see this blog standing in a gap between snark and earnest, right? Like the call out is somewhere between snark and earnest. And caught in that crossfire are a lot of like early 2010 celebs, the Taylors, the Lenas, etc. So I guess if I am working up to a question, like, where do you stand now in your public stance, Liat? Like, how do you think now about, like, the way you want to exist online? And, like, how, how and why has that changed, if it has changed? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, for a long time after I had sort of stopped running the blog actively, which was 
you know, 2015 at the absolute latest, I couldn't even like really think about it without getting just so like nauseous with embarrassment. Oh, interesting. And the thing that embarrassed me about it was the sincerity of it. Like the sincerity felt sure it felt radioactive to me. And just like, cause I think it was this time where I really, you know, I felt very hopeful in some ways and, you know, having been through, you know, first this sexual assault and then shortly after starting the blog, my older sister died in a bus crash. But the thing about the not wanting to look at it wasn't that it reminds me of this horrible time in my life. It was that it reminded me of this very, like I found embarrassing sincerity where the the mission of the blog, you know, initially as it was written and is still up was we just have to let our faves know that what they're doing is, is problematic and then they'll stop it. You know, it's just about education. And if we, as the fans just say, Hey, this is hurting our feelings, then they won't do it anymore. And I really, really wanted that to be true. I think in a, in a world and in a part of my life where I was feeling that there was no justice Mm. and, you know, and I didn't get that. And so I think that's what made that sincerity feel so toxic to me in retrospect as I went through a period for several years after that where I was really angry and all I knew how to do was burn things down. I didn't know how to build anything. And that level of hope really embarrassed me that if we just correct people politely and with love, they'll do better for us. And so, yeah, I mean, I think my stance about the internet now is much more like, I don't know. I think if anything, I'm much more ironic now online and I'm sort of much more snarky in my internet use in some ways, even as I've recovered from that angry period and like become a lot more invested in sincerity and kindness in my personal life. I just, I just don't want to treat the internet that seriously. And I just don't think it's a place for very serious Mm -hmm. conversations or necessarily for sincerity because it, I think it only gets like misconstrued. So you may as well just, I don't know, have fun. Two things that I wanted to to point to there. I think this is such an interesting thing to say, because one thing I think that indicates that the way the idea of cancellation then came up sort of on Tumblr and on, on Twitter is actually a little different from your favorite is problematic in the sense that I think that people there who said X, Y, and Z is canceled always kind of were insincere, right? They were joking a little bit. They were like, oh, I'm done with this person. Who is not going to give a shit, right? So like in some way, the cynicism, but like, like, you know, Taylor Swift's going to be like quaking in her boots over the fact that like I called her out, like was already in there. Like it's basically like there's something a little bit, I don't want to say impotent, but there's like a little bit like, Look, it's my form of disinvesting. It's my way of taking the internet not too seriously. And so what you're describing is something far more aching, far more far more personal and far more invested. And of course, as you're pointing out, that's not just you working through that. It's the folks sending in the requests. These are these are people who are still young enough to put real faith in other people and feel a kind of proximity that like today I feel like it's really hard to think one has with any celebrity, right? The, the question I wanted to ask about that is, it feels to me that, that your favorite problematic is also of a time when celebrities were on Tumblr without adult supervision, right? There was a kind of sincerity coming the other way as well, that like people were just kind of out there in ways that like today I feel like T-Swift would not be caught just like 
posting posting in responses on Tumblr or that she can like get into any kind of trouble. Were you spurred to this kind of sincerity as well by the fact that at least certain celebrities seemed to be approachable in a way that today they frankly just don't? Yeah, I think it really did feel like you could actually communicate with your fave and let them know that what they had said was offensive to you. Like it was like the overlap in the time where everyone was using the internet and everyone was online, but before everyone had realized that everything needs to be done through a publicist and you can't just have a famous person posting to their own account and interacting with the fans directly. It was like maximum celebrity online and minimum like handling for celebrities online. And yeah, I mean, all the requests, so many of the requests at least were made with a lot of love and they were often phrased in a way that was like, Oh God, please don't have anything on Harry Styles. I really need to know, oh. but I really don't want to know. You know, it was it was phrased in this way of people were like What innocent time it was, pre don't worry, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope there's nothing about this person because I love them so much. But asking also felt like a form of care because it was kind of right. like, well, we can make them better. Once I have the information, I as a fan can communicate it to them because they are on Tumblr and then they will fix their behavior and become an even better, you know, idol for me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the celebrities were just like Taylor Swift actually had a Tumblr. I, you know, I forget about that wow. now that she's like the most famous woman alive with like the most intense PR strategy, but she had a Tumblr. I mean, and I would interact with some of the people directly. John Green, the YA author, he responded to my post about him and he and I had like a several post back and forth about it. And I think he kind of stepped back some of his Tumblr use some point around then. And, you know, the irony of it was that a lot of the stuff in the post about him was that it seemed like he was kind of like too invested in the lives of some of his teenage fans. And they sort of were a little too close to him or it felt like, why is this guy like weighing in on breakup advice, you know, for high schoolers who are writing to him on Tumblr? There's something weird here. And what he didn't know is that in responding to it, he was, of course, engaging very closely with another teenage girl, which was, you know, like I was debating to him somehow about how it was like inappropriate for him to be this heavily invested in the lives of teenagers. And he's arguing with what he doesn't know is just another teenager about that. That's another interesting thing that I thought about. You, you mentioned in the article the story of an actor actually submitting himself to your famous problematic. And of course, like at first when I read that, I was like, what, what a bizarre thing to do but then i was like wait actually in some way this actor was kind of like kind of being very traditional because like that's mm. kind of isn't that what you do with a blind item like did people kind of treat you as a gossip blog not kind of getting that this was like a 17 year old like doing this or do you think that some people thought you were like the next I don't know, paris hilton or something like that and like they had to interact with you as press um th that that only like that little detail sort of occurred to me only much later that like of course with like a gossip columnist you would do that but not with a again yeah not with a 17 year old on tumblr like don't don't email them under any circumstances why would you no i mean i never felt that i was i can't remember being sent anything that felt like information that wasn't already public. Mm, okay. I mean, you know, sometimes a request would be phrased as something like, can you post about so-and-so? I hear he's creepy or I hear there's something weird about this person, but there was never any detail. No one was ever telling me any stories about something that had happened to them or someone they knew. Right. I mean, yeah, this actor who submitted himself, 
he did so with a link to a tweet that he had posted, which was a joke about Harriet Tubman. And then he had written a follow-up tweet, like apologizing for, you know, people like had told him that the joke was offensive and he had written an apology tweet. And in a way it was a press, like he just sent it to me as a press release almost. Like he didn't just say, can you look me up? He, like he said, it was basically like, I'm supposed to post this apology press release on his part and say, here's the tweet. He said it's problematic and it is problematic. But that also was public information that, you know, he had posted this from his official Twitter. He had posted the apology from his official Twitter. In a way, I was like a gossip columnist, but only in that I had gotten the official press release. But everything I found was just stuff I turned up on Google. Sometimes people would send me links to stuff that was online. But by and large, it was just me Googling a lot of keywords in quotation marks. It's so wild to reread your New York Times essay, knowing what was omitted from it, too. Like, I'm thinking about so many things as we're talking. I'm thinking about how, you know, in some of these call outs, like, there was a fire attached to the smoke that was like surfacing on the internet, you know, like Lena Dunham and race, that story did not end with your fave is problematic. You know, I think it's fair to say that. <laughs> and so as as we're thinking about like, what, one thing that we think about a lot, like as feminists is what is the function of rumor? What is the function of gossip? What is the function of a whisper network? Right. And, and there's an element of that going on here too. So, Given all of that, I think it's so interesting and also heartbreaking that this project began for you as a sort of, tell me if this feels right or wrong to you, but it feels like a sort of holding up of evidence, right? You know, like you you had gone through this unspeakable thing. You were gaslit and dismissed when you tried to report it, as happens to so many survivors. And so you started creating a different kind of evidence to hold up. And it's also interesting to me that you note in your essay that this the Your Favorite's Problematic blog also emerged as a response to some shit that people were posting online about you, right? So, like, there was an, a different kind of amassing of evidence happening there. So, like, in a freer way than you could talk about in the New York Times, can you take us back to that a little bit and, like, sort of how you feel about those motivations now or what you feel like you understand now as an adult that you might not have understood as a young person when you look back on all that? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, looking at the article without that, it does feel like something's missing. Yeah. I do think people who read it at the time, some of them seemed to intuit that there was a little bit more because I just say, oh, I was being bullied a bunch at school and kids were posting online about me and I made a blog about them. And, you know, there's no mention of what was going on there. Some people knew, some people didn't. But yeah, I mean, after I had been assaulted and it felt like, you know, the school had just told me to shut up about it. I, you know, started getting very vocal and it was a really radicalizing experience. Even a few months before that, I remember, you know, making fun of a classmate who said she was a feminist. And I was saying like, no, I don't hate men. Like, I'm not like her. I don't hate men. I'm cool. Mm. And Mm. I think the experience of realizing that all of these adults who were, you know, there supposedly to like be the protective authority figures were really only interested in sort of like maintaining and replicating like the status quo. Liability and image management is what happens to so many survivors. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I went to a fancy private school. They could basically do whatever they wanted in terms of, you know, my speech and things like that. And so I started talking about it more and more and posting about it on social media. And that led to classmates of mine 
reacting really badly and both posting about me online and then made it to school. I went to high school in Minnesota. This was December and I couldn't sit under windows because uh, kids would open the window and pull in snow to dump on me. Like it became a really intense environment really, really quickly. And the worse it got, the more I started posting online about it and trying to call out these kids who I was in school with. And the more that my school was like, you have to stop posting about your classmates. Parents are going to think that their kids are unsafe here, which was your kids are unsafe here. They are. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> but so I sort of went off to winter break with this feeling of something's going to happen here. Something's got to give either just something's going to go wrong here. I was super socially isolated at that point. I was really, really ostracized. And the night before I was supposed to go back to school for the spring semester of my senior year, my family and I found out that my sister had died after this from the injuries she'd gotten in this bus accident five days prior when she was studying abroad in a really, really rural part of Bolivia. And in a way that was kind of this like deus ex machina that actually like lifted me out of the problems of this situation because the school which had been threatening to expel me if I didn't stop posting online and maybe even if I did they couldn't do that anymore because it would have looked really really bad for them and so there was sort of a like detente reached between my parents and the school's lawyers I wasn't involved because I was 17 at the time which was basically she's not going to come on campus she's no longer, like she's no longer a student here, but they made up a fake transcript. Basically they extrapolated my grades for the colleges I had already gotten into. And so I was placed on, you know, quote unquote medical leave, which was to be away from campus and to not say anything about the school or students online. And I had this Tumblr that had started as a place where I was posting about my school and about the students who were being awful to me was also where I had been like sort of learning all of this language of social justice at like lightning speed. And suddenly as much time as I'd had on my hands being yeah. pretty ostracized, it was like, I don't even go to school anymore. I just live in this house where everyone lies separately in a dark bedroom and there's no lights on and no one ever makes food and no one ever does anything. There was nothing going on. And so I just spent more and more time online, but I couldn't use Tumblr in the same way that I had been doing. And so I'd been seeing these sorts of posts where there would be a couple things about a certain celebrity or about a certain topic. And so I was like, I can just compile this. I've got time on my hands. I've got a little bit of research skills and a certain aptitude for persnicketiness and fastidiousness. I can just format these in a way that's accessible. And it felt like a public service that I was doing in a way. I was like, I'm like Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, putting things together so everyone can know can know what's going on. But yeah, I mean, what it was to me, clearly this sort of like plea to the evidence was that I felt like I hadn't been taken seriously by my school, by other students. And yeah, it just became like evidence and sort of proving that something had gone wrong and someone should fix it became like a real religion to me for like that period of my life where there was really nothing else. Mm. And your parents are grieving and like chaos has just descended. Like nothing that was true yesterday about your family is true today. You're all adjusting to this new reality. That must have been really intense. Yeah, I was a middle child who always identified very, very strongly as a middle child. I'm not into astrology, but I am into birth order theory, which is something only middle children are into. (laughs) 
Ian's face just did that because he is so sick of my asking every one of our guests about birth order because I am obsessed with I can't believe this came up organically for once. No, I mean, like, fair play to you, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Please continue talking about birth order. I just don't believe in it the same amount that you do. You're a birth order If you were a middle child. Oh, yeah. I'm an oldest oldest child married to another oldest child. I mean, like, I'm not not... I'm not, I'm not convinced by it. But like, you are a classic oldest child. Anyway, Liat, please continue. You were a middle child, strongly identifying with being a middle child. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. And I will say oldest children are the, the second worst birth order theory deniers after youngest children. Um, who <laughs> yeah, they can't handle the, the truth. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was. I felt like it was a huge part of my identity. I was always very, very close with my older sister. I often felt like she was the only person in my family who I was close to or felt understood by, or, you know, sometimes cared for by, and all of a sudden that was gone and it was yet hugely destabilizing, you know? Yeah. My parents definitely, I think have regrets about the way that they stopped parenting us right after that. But yeah, my identity was completely, you know, in flux. I'd always just been her little sister who was going to do all the same stuff she did. And I think part of this was also finding my own identity and finding that Mm -hmm. I could like, you know, I could have this thing that was a new interest for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was like, you know, this could be my interest was this social justice stuff. And, you know, I didn't have to do whatever activities she had done. I, this was my way of sort of, I think, starting to differentiate myself and mm-hmm. also trying to reckon with feelings of unfairness, both in the way that things had gone for me at school and also on a much more cosmic level about this like abrupt death of the only person I felt close to in the world. And yeah, just really trying to think about like, what is fair? What do we deserve? Mm, What is justice? Yeah, I thought a lot about even at the time, you know, my sister had basically treatable injuries that just were not able to be treated because she was in such a remote area. And if she had been closer to a city or if she had been in a rural area, you know, somewhere like the US, she probably would have lived. And thinking about that and thinking about the fact that this was only remarkable because it was my sister who was, you know, like me, an upper middle class white girl who things should have gone right for. People had the sense. Every disgusting person with their disgusting casserole came to my house and said, you know, she didn't deserve this. And I, at the time, just remember thinking, well, who does? You know, if she had been Bolivian, would she deserve this? And, you know, just the fact that she was unlikely to die of treatable injuries but had felt also, I think, made me think a lot about fairness and was definitely, I think, the most radicalizing moment for me in terms of my politics that carries through today, just in terms of what people deserve on a very basic level and what we're willing to accept as fine if it happens to some people and, you know, they didn't deserve it if it happens to others. Something that the way you're describing your situation at the time that really brings home to me is just how a lot of these discursive structures uh, around cancel culture, call out culture, whatever, 
but also just like about Tumblr teens, right? Who are always like up on their social justice causes and language policing each other and all this and like coming up with new pronouns, what have you. But like even people who are very sympathetic to that. It's become extremely common to not extend a whole lot of empathy to that and just kind of think it's just a bunch of kids kind of shit posting essentially. And I think the way you're sort of pulling back the curtain there and saying, you know, this is what you were going through. And it was coming from, I would say, probably a particularly dark and particularly upsetting place. But then again, who knows, right? Like along the same lines of you, who, de- who does deserve it? It's like, who knows what the people who were writing to you were going through and what brought them to Tumblr at 15, 16, 17. Sure. And, you know, grappling with totally different things. And then what, by the time it sort of becomes like, oh, the, the woke mob is doing this and that, right? Like this kind of joy people take and just kind of using the fact that these are anonymous accounts to some extent and saying, well, in some way, there is nothing to be empathetic here, which like on a literal level is true, right? Like you don't know the person, but like, it's not hard to kind of hear the pain behind the project. And the interesting thing is that it took you putting it in the newspaper of record before that became obvious to anyone, when in fact, like anyone should be able to look at that and be like, this is someone who's working through things. And that doesn't mean everything they do is excused. It doesn't mean that everything they do is good, but it doesn't mean that it has to be understood as part of a pretty complex, they're working through shit. Everyone on Tumblr, I feel like that's why I never went because it's like, everyone's always figuring this shit out. It's like extremely exhausting, but also extremely wonderful in that much more than a Twitter. On Twitter, you feel like people are bringing some pretty existential questions to that space. And then usually failing to like actually come up with the right answers, but like, whatever, like sometimes the questions are what matters. And I, I'm just so struck hearing you kind of lay out the situation in which Tumblr was the obvious place to go and which your favorite problematic was the obvious thing to apply yourself to how even I, who have been thinking about this genealogy of cancel culture for a long, long time, it hadn't occurred to me to ask, you know, what was the emotional state of people who were behind these early phenomena. And, and I think that that's, that's really, really noticeable to me that like, you know, we're being asked how Louis CK might feel all the fucking time. No one's like, how, how might the creator of your favorite problematic be feeling, right? Like what, what's she going through? I think that's just both moving and, and kind of, kind of sobering. And I think it gets at the, at the question that, that Laura was asking earlier, right? About sincerity that like there is something achingly sincere about or about that period of tumblr at least yeah i mean that was a moment on tumblr where i think it was it was like watching like a fast-paced evolution of people's like identities and politics and ideas about themselves and like i compare it to like an amish barn building where all of a sudden in the course of a day you just see this entire structure come together amazing midwestern metaphor (laughs) chef's kiss 10 out of 10 (laughs) in real time there was just this huge ecosystem of like politics and relationships and identities coming together and yeah like it's fine that I, you know, made fun of a classmate who called herself a feminist two months before this. Like, why shouldn't I be an authority on it now two months later? Like, it all just happened fast. And it was the fact that I was learning it at the same time that I was, like, sort of teaching it just made sense because that was the environment there. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, people's reaction to the piece coming out, you know, in general, it was, I think it was pretty positive. I didn't have Twitter at the time and a couple friends sent me digests of I'm sure what was only the nice, the nicest of the nice stuff. But recently I had, I got a drink with a, someone who I've, I had met through working in publishing, both of us. And I was talking about how I was going to do this. And we were talking about 
my essay in the New York Times, which she had read before we had really even met. And she said that she had told a friend of hers that we were going to be getting a drink and that she had met me through publishing. And her friend said, oh, I'm so glad to hear that she's okay. Like, and she has a job and everything. That's great. And I couldn't tell if the implication was meant to be that they thought I was so traumatized that I couldn't be functioning in certain ways or that I would be unemployable or both. But, you know, it hadn't really struck me that like, yeah, in the time that no one was maybe particularly thinking about who I was or what I was going through, now in a way people are, or you know, did for a bit after that piece came out, but it had never occurred to me that that would be like the position I was in, you know, that what this person was describing with their comment, because like, I don't know, like, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I don't know what to say. Like, Do you think that they so, thought that you were like uh, living in like someone's basement, like just typing away furiously on a new Tumblr blog or what was the... I got the sense more that they thought that I was like in a padded room, like that I was just like not okay, not capable of functioning. They seem really impressed that I was holding down the job. I'm impressed with anyone who can hold down a job. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean... Yeah, labor is a horrible experience. Oh my god, I love it when my little my I shouldn't call them little. I I love it when my August Gen Z students whom I respect and am enriched by, you know, I'll ask them what's their dream job and they're like, "Professor, I don't dream of labor." And I'm like, "Oh, the world has changed and I am in favor of that change." <laughs> the kids are all right. Oh, well, it has. I mean, so I'm I'm 27 now. I just started grad school. I just started the social work master's program. A lot of my classmates, as it turns out, are 22 and fresh out of undergrad. And I'm having the experience of feeling like an old conservative person in talking yeah. to them and it feeling like... Comes up fast, okay, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. And it's, it's wild to me. And I keep having the feeling of wanting to say like, okay, I think everyone who's here doing this social work master's degree is probably about on the same page with things. And we don't all need to come down really hard on someone for using the wrong word. That energy would be better spent on people who don't like inherently agree with us. And yeah, I mean, I was joking with a friend and I was like, I invented cancel culture and I'm going to get canceled by all my 22 year old classmates for being like, guys, it's not a big deal. Like, it's okay. We can all just calm down here. Um, and there's something like life really comes at you fast. Sure does. Yeah. Sure there's does. That, I mean, this, this is going to date me, but like, there's that really great joke on the Simpsons. Do you know the one where, Gra where grandpa Simpson tells Homer, I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it. And what it is seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. I guess what yeah, it's happening to you. <laughs> it, it is. It is. Oh, man. Well, that actually gets to something else that I wanted to make sure I asked you, which is how do you feel in, in like the medium to long view now? How do you feel about your decision not to come out as the blog's author until fairly recently? Like, how do you, how do you feel about that decision now? I mean, I feel good about it because I think I needed that distance from it. You know, I think it still felt mm -hmm. so white hot to me, even while I was still like writing this, this essay for reasons where my motivation still feels a little bit opaque to me. I mean, yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I still see often people saying whatever happened to this blog that remember when it invented cancel culture. And yeah, this idea that, that I generated this wave instead of just surfing it. And that if I hadn't, if I hadn't put my fingers on the keyboard, like, you know, the world would be this utopian ideal where 
there was no so-called cancel culture or no like carceral attitude socially is very, very, I mean, where we'd have a 10th season of house of cards. Um, what a wonderful (laughs) world that would be, you know, exactly. Um, I mean, let me just tell you about your influence. Like I teach a fall seminar in English and feminist gender studies called the evolution of the feminist first person essay 2000 to present. And in that syllabus, there is a like day one disclaimer. That's like, Hey guys, all our faves are problematic. We're just going to talk about it. <laughs> so it's like this language is far reaching and has had an impact that is undeniable. Like I, I can see it. Adrian, what were you about to say? I think one of the things that we can't discount here is of course that my guess is that if you were to start that blog today, it would be different for the simple reason that, you know, you said something really beautiful a couple of minutes ago when you said, you know, that people were sort of learning and teaching at the same time on Tumblr. And like, mm-hmm. and of course, like, if young people have to teach themselves something online, there's a re- there's usually a, that's usually a good indicator that they're not learning it or there are no existing structures to teach them elsewhere, which yes. before you created this blog, literally you had just found out that basically your school, which was supposed to you know, have your best interest at heart, that your community, which was supposed to have your best interest at heart, didn't. Well, I guess Tumblr it is then, right? Like, and in some way, maybe the story, I guess, let me ask you this question. Would the story look different today that, you know, Me Too has given us a new vocabulary and other venues through which to kind of say the formerly whispered part out loud? Do you think that that's part of it, that you kind of had to construct this thing just because there was just a whole lot, a whole lot of public discourse missing in 2013 that, you know, by 2017, there would have at least been a space if you wanted to occupy it? I mean, I'd really like to think that. And I think in some ways that's true. And I think, you know, like the Me Too movement has done a lot for, I think, giving people a new vocabulary to talk about their experiences and a way to like reframe some of the power dynamics that they see in their worlds. But at the same time, I mean, you know, this New York Magazine article came out just a few months ago that said that this teenager had been canceled and what did the author mean by canceled? That uh, his friends had not wanted to hang out with him. And so he made a bunch of new friends at different schools and went to three proms. That could have been written at any point. It wouldn't have used the language of cancel culture in 2013. But the idea of this, like, who is this empathy for? And like, the article is not about the whisper network of girls at this school who are writing boys' names on the on the bathroom wall because they feel the school has failed them. It's about this you know, very charming young man who's gotten very tall in his growth spurt recently and uh, who got to go to three proms. Yeah. I mean, Laura and I share a friendship with Maura Donegan, who who created, you know, the shitty media men list. And the number of people who've told me that they quote unquote disagree with what Maura Donegan has done. And I'm like, how do you feel about the people who are on the list? Uh, right. Like, and then there's suddenly crickets. It's like, okay, you know, yeah, exactly. This is, you know, the way we distribute empathy has its own rhetoric. It has its own eloquence, I suppose. It tells yeah. us how we see the world and how and who we think has legitimacy and who who has worth. And I take your point that, of course, we haven't made big strides in that in the last few years. I guess I was thinking in terms of sayability, that in some way, you know, you had to sort of transmute what had happened in one way because you were incredibly boxed in into what you could actually say about the sexual assault and bullying. But I mean, you're right that the the New York Magazine story is what six months old at this point. So clearly, we haven't moved that much. Not even. Not even. Oh my god. 
Well, Adrian, since you invoked Moira, I just have to note that Moira always reminds me of like the best detail of etymology, which feels so applicable here, which is that the word gossip originally comes from from Old English godsib, which originally meant someone who is in the room when you are born or a godparent or a baptismal spot. So like it's a word that originally signified an incredibly important conversation that happens like in the room and at the moment of your birth. And then what happens like etymology marches on and this turns into gossip you know a silly word for silly women (laughs) so i just i think that etymology is so fascinating and useful in noting how we treat information i was thinking about this adrian when you were talking about shitposting you know like the same comment from two different sources can be regarded very differently. You know, like just trying to tune in with what people are saying about a person, you know, in one context that would be called gossip in another context that would be called intelligence. (laughs) So, you know, like I, I think we are correct to question the motivations of anybody who is here to dismiss the shitposting of teenagers, you know, because as this interview has revealed, the shitposting of teenagers has many, many layers of relevance and resonance, I think. I did want to briefly come back to the, the question of like the kind of information that you collected. Like on the one hand, that there, there is kind of a gossipy element to it, but as you, you've said it twice now, you didn't do blind items. You only looked at things, looked up things that were findable. They were already like, on the public record. Yeah, yeah did, like that's an interesting... To me, that's that's one of the more most interesting things about the blog, and that it kind of is that you are teaching people something, which is to say, you like I'm providing a service here, but you really ought to be able to do this to your, for yourself, and maybe you should make a habit of that anyway. Can you mm-hmm. say a little bit more about that? Like, did you like? It, obviously, you probably didn't intend it at the time, but did you, looking back, do you kind of think about? The kind of pedagogy that you were, I mean, you're in graduate school now, so pedagogy must be on your mind a little bit. Uh, like, was there something like that contained in it? And you kind of said like, hey, this is how I think you should be online or you should try out being online? Yeah, I mean, yeah, everything I found, I just found by Googling. And, you know, so I I really did feel like I was Wikipedia because no primary sources here are all the links to all of the original versions of this article. Here are the screenshots and really felt like I'm just, I'm just collecting it. And there would be things that I didn't feel like I knew a lot about. And so sometimes I would include like a link to, you know, an article that was about why, you know, actually this word is a slur for Romani people and things I didn't feel like I knew a lot about, but here's why this is here. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think a a sort of popular refrain that I've heard specifically about my blog is that I sort of like broke everyone's critical thinking skills because everything is bad and I flattened everything together. And, you know, someone having a tattoo in a language they didn't speak became the same as Sean Penn eating Madonna. And I really feel like I was, I felt like I was trying to encourage like a bit of like close reading and a little bit of, you know, critical thinking, a little bit of do your own research and it's, it's very funny that that has sort of become like, oh, like cancel culture rotted all our brains and, you know, here's the cavity that started it all. If I can uh, insert myself into that point, I, I, I've become very, very weary of the way that like the lack of empathy and the lack of attention in reading things like in the cancel culture panic really go hand in hand that often efforts like yours are mischaracterized because people just barely 
bother to even look at it. When it comes to cancel stories at American universities, often they don't interview the students or, or the people doing the accusing, right? It's like people have emails, you can email them or you can, like they never even say, we reached out to Ms. So-and-so for comment and she didn't, she declined to be interviewed. Never, like you really get the impression they didn't ask. I often worry about the opposite. Like the freak out about cancel culture is basically a free pass for bad and careless reading. And I, I say this, you know, from a personal standpoint, because Liat, you know this about me. I, uh, I just finished reading the new J.K. Rowling book and it's, it's her imagining her own fans. And it's like, you interact with these people so much. You owe them in some ways so much. How can you be so uncurious about these people? It is a absurd misunderstanding and misreading of what fan cultures are like. And from someone who clearly has seen a lot, as someone who's read and, and attended to very little, and I just... It's such a bummer. It's such. I'm feeling I mean, a little protective of you that you went out and read J.K. Rowling without letting any of your support people know that like, <laughs> they should be checking in on you, Adrian. Come on, you can't put yourself up for this kind of trauma so unthinkingly. It was a very traumatic 48 hours. <laughs> it's just striking to me, like this is someone who clearly has spent a lot of time thinking about online discourses, and yet, like, it's not just empathy. It's like the carelessness in how to read other people's intentions, read other people's texts, right? Stuff where they say, like, this is what I'm doing. And they're like, I think they're doing this other thing. It's like, well, you know, there's just like, literally, they've said it here. You can kind of run with that first, if you'd like, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know we're short on time, but to wrap it up really quickly, I feel like I had forgotten about the part of my blog that said the purpose of this is to let our faves know that we just have to let them know that they're hurting us. And I had forgotten about that until very, very recently when someone else reminded me of it just a few mm. months ago, because I had also lost track of the fact that it started as an act of care. A mirror, kind of. Yeah. And even I had forgotten the origin story of that. Even I had mm. written it off as mean-spirited until I was reminded. Yeah. Well, Liette, you made such such an impression on the world as a teenager. You know, like, what are you working on now? Like, what what is the impact on the world you are working towards and hoping for as an adult? I mean, yeah, I just started this social work program. I am really interested in housing in New York City. I'm working at a housing first residential facility for people who have been chronically unhoused. I I'm interested in labor organizing. I don't know. I'm interested in things that feel much more concrete to me. And mm -hmm. I, you know, prefer not to be internet famous again. And I just feel like, yeah, I just want to work with people and more on a policy level and less just sort of like, you know, alone in my room typing all night. That's amazing. Wonderful. Yeah. That, that sounds, sounds wonderful. As your efforts take you towards, you know, hands-on helping people and away from internet fame, you found the right podcast. Because... <laughs> This isn't going to make anyone internet famous. So, uh, you know, yes. uh, we're glad to help. <laughs> you need to come out as the author of a famous blog and still stay under the radar. <laughs> we're the people you call. What is that called? It's the cooler. I think like a Vegas gambling table that's getting too hot. That's us. <laughs> Leah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been pure delight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan and an evangelist for the show. Oh, thank you so we much. We appreciate it. Call us up next time you want to burn something else down. 
Absolutely, 100%. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.